is a privilege to be back in Aniana, as there is no greater reason to be in Aniana other than to share the gospel. I literally cannot find any other reason to come to Aniana other than to share the gospel. The gospel. Amen. So um, it is <laughs> it is a blessing to um, to be back here um, I was praying that I would be asked to come back. It was such a joy last year, so um, just a privilege to be here. Um, a lot has changed in a year. Um, that baby that my wife was pregnant with last year is now walking, you know. Yeah, yeah. So three of, three of our four are here. The, the little uh, menace is not here today because he cannot be trusted at all. Um, you know, in that time, my hair has grown just a little bit um, since that time. But most importantly, I have trended on both Instagram and TikTok since that time. I mean, if there's nothing else to clap for, that would be the thing to clap for. So um, I follow a lot of you people on uh, social media. A lot of y'all follow me. And it was like the dumbest video ever. It's like, you know, that, that song, Alabama, Alaska Air. And it's like, blink when your state comes up. And I was like, I have to be the first person who thought to do Alabama. And so 2.1 million views later, uh, <laughs> I might be a little popular. And then on TikTok recently, I was more of an innocent bystander in this video. But I am featured in it, you know. It's got like 2.5 million, so I've been telling uh, people, you know, I'm obviously the key to trending on social media. So if you want something to trend, I mean, obviously put, put this on here. This is obviously the meal ticket, you know. So it's a preaching thing. I don't know if that's really going to uh, plan out for me. But nevertheless, um, we are excited to be here. Um, I noticed the theme, and I took note of the theme, and so today we'll be talking, tonight we'll be talking about true victory, what it means to have true victory, um, which it was so poignant that that final song just really talked about the victory that we actually have in Christ. And obviously that's essentially where we're going to settle on, that we realize that the true victory that we have, that we find, that we should seek, should not be in any of our external realities, but it should be in Christ. And so, you know, if, if you're like me, You know, we are all in our lives in some sort of way, in some area of our lives, we are competitive. You know, I fancy myself a pretty competitive person. Um, I am pretty good at football, not great at basketball, but I was playing today um, at the school where I work. And, you know, I always get accused of being a tryhard by the students. I'm like, I absolutely am. Like, I have convinced myself that there are millions of people watching me whenever I play any sport and that they're going to be really disappointed in me if I fail. And so I use that as motivation. I've I've told, like, my wife, you know, I get up, like, really, really early in the morning to go work out, like 3.30. And, you know, I convince myself that there are, like, these invisible people who are watching me not get up. And so, like, that's my motivation to get up. Like, totally psychotic, right? I know, but that's the motivation I use as if, like, it's going to be some great defeat if I don't get up. So, you know, we all in some sort of way are probably going to perceive ourselves to be competitive in some sort of way. And, you know, the way that we judge whether or not we are successful in the things that we compete in is that we gauge our lives against the lives of other people. 
We tend to look at what other people think about us, what their perceptions are of us, and then we judge based on what they say if we have been victorious or not. And, you know, if we are honest, it is really hard to have a measuring stick on our lives without having some sort of way of being justified in what we think about our lives. You know, if we get to the end of our lives and we realize that there is no judge sitting on the seat to render a verdict, we're going to be a miserable set of people because many of us are living our lives to receive some sort of commendation for the lives that we live. And for those of us who are afraid to get that from God, we tend to look at other fallible people as a means of justifying who we are. And so there has to always be some external person outside of ourselves who must declare the winner. An unbiased source, as it were. In sports, that is a ref. In boxing, those are judges. But in life, oddly enough, we tend to try to make those the people around us. The fact, however, is that no one around us is an effective or qualified judge of our lives. So then the question is, is at the end of my life, how can I know whether I won or not? At the end of my life, how can I know that I did a good job, that 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 I made the right decisions, that I made the right choices, that my life actually had some purpose, some meaning? And I can tell you now that if you look at life as this great competition, then you're already on the verge of losing anyway. Look with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 24. And we're going to start at verse 13. Luke 24, verse 13. It says, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be him to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. 
So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for scripture, God. Ultimately, everything that we need to know about life and the next life is found in scripture, God. There is no other source of truth. There is no other path that we would dare take outside of your holy word. So God, as we go through your word today, give us what we need. Show us what it means to be truly victorious in you and not ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So one thing you should know about victory is that victory is not a matter of perception, right? It's not a matter of perception, but sometimes defeat is. Victory is a set of communicable truths that all point to a decision, but sometimes one can actually feel defeated even before they are actually defeated. In our text tonight, we have the group of disciples who are wrestling with some hard truths. And the main truth that they are wrestling with is that Jesus had not met their expectations. Let's back up, though. It is the third day and the disciples are actually nowhere to be found. The Marys, as we're told, are actually heading down to the tomb of Jesus because they want to go down there and put spices on his body because the Jews did not adopt the embalming practices of the Egyptians. And they knew that by the third day or so that his body would have been at the point of decomposition and it would have had a discernible stench. So as they are preparing, they notice that the stone is missing from the tomb. And they run and they go tell the disciples who were hiding. Now, why were they hiding? I mean, after all, had Jesus not emphatically told them that he would be killed? Did he not tell them and the Pharisees that the temple would be destroyed and then raised back up? So why in the world are they hiding? The reason they're hiding is because they perceive that the death of Jesus was his final and great defeat. But it was just perception. It was their failure to understand what exactly he was saying. But why were they so confounded? It brings us to our first point in the sermon tonight. They were too earthly minded. They were too earthly minded. They were too carnal. 
all the way back to the coronation of Jesus, as he is celebrated, the Jews have a misunderstanding of what Jesus was actually coming to do. Their expectation is that he is coming to establish this earthly kingdom, set it up and eradicate all of the enemies of Judaism. See, their whole concept of a king was one who would rule and reign, but rule and reign with retributive justice. The disciples thought this as well, by the way. Their constant struggle was that they wanted Jesus to be more retributive. They wanted him to judge quickly and harshly. They were so caught up in the realities of this world that they were actually missing what God had intended for them to do. Look at this. There's an there's an interesting thing that happens in another passage in Luke. And I want you to hear this. It's in Luke 9:51. It says when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and he went on to another village. You want to talk about a people who completely had their affection set for this world? Here you have people who have rejected Jesus and the gospel and as opposed to having the perseverance to go back and share the gospel again to saturate lost people with the gospel. They actually say, do you want us to do like Elijah did and pray for fire to rain down on these people so that you can judge them and so that they would die? They had people who didn't receive Jesus and somehow they think that a reasonable response is that God would judge them and kill them like we saw in the Old Testament. See, their whole idea of life, their whole idea of justification is being able to prove themselves to others. It wasn't really about the gospel. They wanted to prove that the way that they were going was right. They wanted to prove they were so harsh and so bent on proving that what they were doing was right, that they were actually undermining the mission that Christ had for them in the first place. They weren't concerned about the fact that Jesus was rejected, but they wanted to be known for their own greatness. They wanted to be known for their own righteousness. How do we know that? Because in this same chapter, they come to Jesus and they say, by the way, when you get into your kingdom, which one of us is going to be the greatest? They were completely consumed by their own carnality. But I want you to know this. Theirs is not an uncommon problem, is it? Of course not. Every single day, people are investing time, money, energy into their own self-preservation. Every single day, people are posting frivolously to give the impression that they are happy, that they are wealthy, that they are healthy, that they are progressive, that they are Christian, that they are content, that they are conservative. All these things so that they can gain some meaning from their life based on how other people view them. 
Do you know how miserable you have to be to rely on other miserable people to make you feel less miserable? The disciples communicated their misguided expectation of Jesus. They say, though they don't know it's him, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They were still thinking only about their own kingdom. This is why the death of Jesus looked to them to be a great defeat. Their eyes were fixed at the wrong place. That's what happens when we as believers place our eyes only on the temporal, the things of this world. Every setback, every trial, every test feels like a defeat. It no longer feels like it's a process of our sanctification where Christ is using those things to conform us in his image. Everything feels like an attack from Satan. When we only focus on this life and what's happening now, God feels and seems less sovereign to us. This is one of the reasons why we have these massive reactions when every little thing happens because we see everything that is now as the eternal. But this is not the eternal. Second Corinthians four and 16, Paul writes this. He says, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is actually preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen, that's what's actually eternal. This is where we as believers must anchor ourselves in the truth. We are not living in the things that are fixed. We are not living in the time that is permanent. We are actually living in the fleeting, the fading away, the transient. And you'd have to be a fool to think that I should invest any amount of time in what will one day appear to be just a moment. So as he says, we know that because this is the transient, we endure now. Because even the afflictions that we experience are but momentary. It is a light in comparison to the eternal weight of glory. So we do not look at what is seen, but we look at what is unseen. So the first point that we make is that they were too earthly minded. The second one is that they forgot the word. They forgot the word. Jesus says to them that they are slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now, whether or not we believe the word of God absolutely shapes how we perceive what is actually happening in the world. But it also shapes how we perceive what is happening to us. The disciples had the same point of reference that we all have when it comes to knowing who Jesus actually is. They had the Old Testament. 
See, the same places that they could go in order for them to know that there was a Messiah coming in the first place. It's the same places that we go to know that Jesus was, in fact, that Messiah prophesied to us. We go to the Old Testament to know, to validate that the Jesus that we see, the Savior in the New Testament, is, in fact, the true Savior. And they could go to those places knowing what the Messiah was going to have to endure, knowing that he would be our suffering servant. But see, this is the problem. They only saw the parts that they thought most immediately benefited them. I recently preached a sermon at our church on assurance of the faith. And one of the things that I was careful to make note of is that when we lack assurance, when we don't have any hope in tomorrow, any hope in eternity, we tend to judge everything that happens in life in the now. But not just that we judge it in the now. We even become pessimistic because we have no hope in an eternity with Jesus. We have no hope in a God who is beyond ourselves. And so we view everything that happens to us as a defeat. And then when that happens, as we all know and do, we run to our sin, which pacifies us. We run to our idols to find immediate comfort. See, when we have assurance and when we have our eyes fixed on eternity because of God's word, then we know that even the defeats are victories. That even when something dramatic or traumatic happens to us, it is God shaping us and breaking us and molding us and conforming us into the image. The image by which will not be perfected in this life, but it will be perfected in the next life. When we will shed humanity and all of our sin, though we have been saved from the penalty of our sins, there is coming a day when we will be saved from the presence of our sin. My favorite quote of John MacArthur that people always ask him, what is the most the thing that you are looking for the most to eternity? He says, I'm sick of sin. I'm just tired of sin. Let me tell you, the only way you can truly be tired of sin is that when you have your eyes fixed on eternity. When we have this assurance, when we have our lives fixed on him, even the defeats are victories. How? Because we have a God who is sovereignly and providentially working all things together for our good and for his glory. If you are not a believer, you do not have that guarantee. You do not know that things are all working together for your good. In fact, if you are not a believer, your defeats are actually defeats. If you are not a believer, your defeats are actually leading you to the great defeat that you will experience in your separation from God for all of eternity. There is no hope in anything if you are not a believer, but if you are. This is the only hell you will ever know. And so if I have to go through hell so that I don't go to hell, I'm willing to do that. 
I would hate to go through hell and then go to hell. So we don't get stuck as believers in the prism of right now, because as our text said before, ain't none of this stuff real. In order for us to keep and maintain this perspective, we have to not only know the word, but we have to remember God's word. Third point. They encountered Jesus. They encountered Jesus. This is as significant as a point as I have. It says, and their eyes were open and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. After hiding because of their fear and after believing that they had been defeated, the disciples had an encounter with the risen Lord. The text says that their hearts burn within them. It is quite possible that the reason Luke used this description to say that their hearts burned within them, because it may have been a time where their hearts felt like they had been extinguished. Listen, it is natural in the course of our lives as believers to start to feel like things are getting dull, like the flame is dying out and is almost most certainly connected to the reasons that I've mentioned above. So the question is, when we feel like that, that flame is going out, when we feel like our walk is not as strong as it used to do, how do we feel that flame burn again? Same way they did. We must re-encounter Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus is going to stand and appear before you. You know, there are some people, charismatic, who believe in that, but I'm not one of those people, all right? <laughs> I was specifically for you. I held that in my file cabinet just for you. So, but what we do to re-encounter Jesus is that we saturate ourselves in his word. Taking full advantage of the means of grace, we drive ourselves into his presence by being in the presence of other believers. We actually work out our salvation with fear and with trembling. We put our salvation to work. We stretch it. We knead it like dough so that we are transformed by his word. The easiest way for us to forget the word is to not fellowship with it. What did the Bible say? The Bible tells us emphatically, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then the word became flesh and the word that we have for dwell actually means in the Greek, the word came and tabernacled with us. As the only begotten of the father. 
If I am fellowshipping with the word, then I cannot possibly feel this ringing sense of defeat because the word itself is undefeated. In one fell swoop, Jesus took away the sting of death and he conquered hell, death and the grave. And the only leverage that Satan thought he had over us, Jesus defeated that final enemy. That's it. But there's another enemy that has to be defeated. And I want you to understand this as you search for victory in your life. I want you to know this. I want to be as clear as possible. You are not the hero in your story. Okay. In fact, you're the villain. You in your own life are the greatest threat to your salvation. Now, of course, those of us who have been redeemed, there's nothing that can separate us from his love, but. We are the villains in our lives left up to ourselves. We will destroy. We will corrupt. We will undermine everything that is right. But on the cross. Jesus absorbed the wrath of God intended for us because of our sins. And he was risen on Sunday not to only seal and secure our salvation, but he also sealed and secured our eternity. How do I keep focus? Simple. Remember what Paul said. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing can snatch us out of his hand. If we are his, we are his until the day of redemption. There's nothing, there is no one that can snatch us out of his hand. We are sealed. We are secure in him. And so the reason that's really important is that if you look at the life of Jesus, if you look at the life of the apostles, many of the disciples, they went out and it appeared that they were defeated. Whether it be Peter being crucified, whether it be John being cast on the island of Patmos, whether it be the fact that Paul was beheaded. But you know, none of those things were the justification of who they were in Christ. Their justification, their declaration of righteousness came from Jesus Christ and him alone. That is victory. And so if I'm a believer and I'm a martyr for faith, as Paul said in Philippians, if I have to be poured out as a drink offering, There is nothing that Satan can do to defeat someone.
whose eternity is fixed with Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that in our salvation, one, that we are not the responsible parties for our salvation. In fact, God, if we were the responsible parties of our salvation, not only could we not stay saved, we would never be saved. But God, you have conquered the final enemy. You have defeated death. You have taken away the sting of the grave. God, you have conquered the final enemy. If we belong to you, if we are sealed and secure in you, there are no losses. There are no defeats. There is only sanctification. There is only the conforming of us in your image. God, there are definitely times in our lives where we shift our focus and we take our eyes off you and we look at what is happening around us, God. We look at countries invading other countries and we look at pandemics. We look at tragedies and death and loss and failures, God. And we may want to decide that we are defeated. But God, we see through glass so darkly. God, we truly only know in part. God, help us fix our minds, our eyes, and our hearts on the eternal. And God, I know that there are people who are in this room right now, and their eternities are not fixed in you. They live their lives by each passing day, each passing moment, and they feel the weight of defeat and just just encompassing them. God, I pray that you would burden their hearts, that you will overcome their wills, and that you would sovereignly save them. Open their eyes. Open their hearts and let them know that there is no success, there are no riches, there is no fame, there is no acclaim that can bring fulfillment, but that can also save us from our sins other than you. Let us be satisfied with you and you alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.